Let's pray together. God Almighty, we love you and we want to worship you and ask you, God, to hear our songs to you. And God, and uh, we do it as people who are imperfect, we're flawed, we're, we're kind of ordinary people, God, in, in one sense, but God, certainly we believe that you're an extraordinary God. And so God, I just pray that this morning as we open your word and as we think carefully about what you have to say to us, that you would speak to our hearts in a way that could forever change our lives. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, would you just go ahead and remain standing? Uh, Open up your Bibles if you have them. And we're going to do the scripture reading. I'm going to do it this morning. Our scripture reader-er fell ill, um, and so I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to teach it to you. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we're going to go through uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? When you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We are in a series called Everyday Church. And what we're doing in this series is we're teaching through Peter's letter to a group of Christians who are trying to sort out what does it mean to follow Christ in their everyday lives. 
And this is a pressing question for all of us. There are many of you in here that have chosen to cross over the line of faith and become Christ followers. You've asked God to forgive your sin, believing that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for, paid a penalty for your sin that you cannot pay for yourselves. And through your faith, you have had your sin erased, and you are at peace with God. You're a child of God. Others of you are, are not yet at the point where you're ready to cross over that line of faith. But there's something here for all of us. And, and frankly, I'm putting two weeks' sermons into one because last week I took a pause on the sermon and did a Father's Day talk. And so I'm going to help you understand what these verses mean. And there's some things in there, as you read them, you're like, oh, snap. You know, like, you know, there's, a, in fact, in this Bible, whoever, this is not my particular Bible, the passage that says, wives be subject to your own husbands, it's underlined like three times. <laughs> it's, so there's some dude like, hey, you know, sweetie, you know, look at this. Um, but we're going to, I'm going to help you understand what it means, because I believe that in these words, we can better understand how we are to live our faith every single day. I don't know about you, but I I don't want to say, hey, I'm a Christian and it not impact my everyday life. And frankly, we live in a day where the idea that you're a Christian isn't as like, oh, that's great, as it used to be. We live in a day where when somebody hears that you're a Christian, they begin to think, oh, I don't know about that person. Are they judgmental? Are they hateful? Do they say they're a Christian, but the rest of their lives do not look like it? And so what we care about is like, okay, let's look at the Bible and ask God to reveal to us as we study his word what it means to be a Christian every single day in a way that makes sense. I've said it before, the church is not a building. It is a people on mission. The church is not a Sunday gathering. It is a way of life. Well, Peter is is writing this letter, and and he calls them two things in chapter 2, verse 11. He calls them sojourners and exiles. And and that's kind of important as we think about what the passage means here. A sojourner is someone who is living temporarily in a place that's not their real home. An exile is someone that's forced to live in a foreign land. So these two words give us the sense of what Peter thought about those Christians in those early days, how, how they were living somewhere that they were kind of forced to live, but it wasn't their home. And we, we would certainly feel the same kind of way. This is not our home. We have an eternal home with the Lord Jesus. But in this place that we're living, we want to sort out how do we live in a way that honors God and reflects Christ. Well, another reality that the people that Peter's writing to is dealing with is that they're suffering. They're suffering as a result of their faith in Christ. People were quite hostile to them. And so what Peter does in three sections, in chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, he talks about how they're to respond to the suffering they're experiencing in society as a result of rulers that were harsh. Uh, And then he says in verse 18 through 25, this is how you're to respond in a workplace environment. Uh, and, and when you're suffering, and here, here's how you're to live out your faith in Christ. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he talks about here is how you're to live and the things you're to focus on whenever you're suffering in your home as a result of your faith in Christ. And so there's something really good here for all of us. There's some suffering that they're experiencing. Maybe you're experiencing suffering. The main idea, the thing I'm going after is this. The way we respond in difficult situations is a powerful witness to the hope we have in Christ. The way we respond in difficult situations is a powerful witness to the hope we have in Christ. There's a 
New York Times op-ed columnist named David Brooks that I like, and he penned an insightful piece about the fearful gift of suffering. We're going to talk a bit about that suffering today. He talks about, in our culture, the, the, the irony is that the culture is obsessed with happiness, yet our growth oftentimes comes through suffering, through difficulty. He has this phrase, when people remember the past, they don't always talk about happiness. It is often the difficulties that seem most often significant. People shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. Maybe you can think about your own life and your past, and you can think about some of the most life-changing events in your history. And, and maybe for some of you, those life-changing events had very closely connected to them some form of suffering. And what I contend is that the way to find your way in the midst of difficulty is to lift your eyes to see Jesus. In 2012, a hurricane hit the East Coast. Hurricane Sandy, I think is what it was called. There was a photographer that was deployed to capture the story of how people were dealing with suffering. One photographer met this woman whose roof had been blown off by gale-strength winds. And the picture is striking as it shows a woman standing tall in the midst of incredible suffering. This photojournalist asked her how she could remain calm, standing so tall, so sure in the midst of this suffering. And she says, sometimes you have to lose the roof to be able to see the stars. Jesus is the star we're going to gaze upon in this moment. He is the star that we can be sure we'll find hope in if we gaze on in difficult times. He's the greatest example of one who suffered but did not allow the suffering to keep him from fulfilling the purpose for which he was put on earth. I don't know what's going on in every one of your lives. Maybe you're experiencing some kind of difficulty. And if the thought just came into your mind, well, but mine's not as bad as that person's or that person's. Let's, let's just admit, every one of us has someone in our lives or we know someone who's suffering more seriously than whatever the worst situation in our life is, right? I mean, most of us can think of somebody's. But, so let's just admit that. But just for a moment, consider this. Is your suffering paralyzing you or keeping you from God's purpose for your life? Three domains that Peter addresses that these Christians were experiencing suffering. First of all, society. When suffering in society, he says people are to respond by doing good. Everybody say good. Good. I'm going to get that on the podcast. We're going to splice in. What do you think about my sermon? Everybody's going to say good. Um, Well, Peter here is instructing Christians to submit themselves to government God has placed over them and to honor officials. Quite interesting here if we can think about this. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is a real hot topic, of course, because I'm not sure I can remember a time in my own life and maybe even in history where what was happening politically was more polarizing in our culture. And you might even say, well, I'm not sure that I can find a way to suffer well in the midst of the difficulty I'm experiencing because of the current regime, city government, state, 
officers, you know, national government, whatever it may be that offends you. And you might even say, I don't like them. They're corrupt. And, and I just want to get out there that the government that Peter is writing to these Christians, uh, the government that's in charge is far worse and far more dictator, dictatorial than, than the one that we have. There's a lot of things about this country that are quite amazing, we, are, we should admit. And it, it, you may not like the government, but we must believe that God is sovereign enough to put the government in place that he wants for a greater purpose than what we can see. It's pretty clear. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The emperor was not a great guy. It's hard to argue with that. And so we can think about, okay, there's suffering that I'm experiencing that's a, a result of the government that's in place and the policies that are in play. What do I do? And, and certainly we want to have the conversation, uh, not now, but at times, where w- how can we reform the current government policies in a way that would, would more enable us to be able to live out faith in Christ and invite others to Christ, right? We would certainly want to have that conversation. But what Peter is doing here is he's actually at telling them, he's not telling them how to reform the government that's in place. He's actually telling them how to live out their Christian faith in the midst of the government that was very difficult. And here's what he says. In society, we live out our faith by finding ways to do good. I love that. Chapter 2, verse 13. By doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There are a lot of people complaining, being negative. But as Christians, what we get to do in the midst of whatever difficulty you're experiencing resulting from the government policies, you get to do good in the midst of it. You know one thing that really bothers me about the way that the government is set up in Houston, the way that money is spent, the way that, that things function? It bothers me that there's a section of kids in our city that have less access to great resources for their education. It bothers me. It just makes no sense to me in a city where there's so much affluence that there would be kids who would struggle uh, in school because they don't have the proper materials or, and, and they, they don't give them the opportunity to be creative because they don't have the proper materials. And so there's a couple of things that we as a church could do. One is we could complain and be like, oh, if Sylvester Turner was this or that or whatever, and I like Sylvester Turner, just for the record, in case he's listening, I'm sure he is. Um, but... Uh, you know, or, or, or if, you know, if the, the superintendent of HISD would do this and that, and there's things that could change, whatever. But here's how our church recently responded by doing good. And, and I had nothing to do with this. And I'll tell you what, this makes me quite proud. David, would you come up here for a second? Ty, we're going to need to get one of these mics working. Which one? This one? Okay. Come right here, David. So something happened in the beginning of June. I was gone, and, uh, and I've asked David... To, this is David Chandler. Give it up for David. Good morning, everyone. Um, David, I, 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 sent, I got some pictures sent to me by Andrew about something happened where in this church a group of people chose to do good to help meet, rather than complaining about what wasn't happening to children in this school in particular, they chose to do good. So David, tell us a little bit about uh, what these pictures mean. So I'm, I'm a school nurse. I work at Harvard Elementary in the Heights. And I remembered, really, my, my inspiration for this was I remembered when we did the book drive 
uh, here at Gregory Lincoln. And so at the end of the school year, all the teachers will go through their classrooms and uh, what, what, was ended up, what was happening was they were throwing away a lot of the supplies that they didn't have it, they didn't use during the year. So there were, a lot, there were things like construction paper, pens, pencils, uh, lots and lots of books. And so what I did was I went to my principal and I said, hey, I, I know that our church can use these supplies and we can donate them. Uh, so please, if I can, reach out to the teachers and ask them not to throw, the, it was being thrown away. It was perfectly good stuff that was going in the dumpster. Uh, if I can ask them, please don't throw it away. We will find somewhere, whether we use it at the church, we donate it to Gregory Lincoln, we have families that can use it, uh, or if we go through it and we take it to Goodwill, but please just don't, don't throw it away. And so all the teachers, as they were cleaning out their classrooms, they would bring their supplies, and I had a couple of desks set up outside of the, the clinic at the school, and they would bring everything that they were going to throw away and just set it on the table. So we ended up with three van loads of supplies that we took. Uh, this was just one, one of the van loads um, that we took over to the Kreitz house, and they capped it there for us. Hey, is there anybody else that's like high A, like super like, you know, compulsive that that bothers? <laughs> <laughs> they just thrown in there, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just need to say that. No I just need to say that out loud. We just wanted to get it. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just messing. With you. I'm just messing with you. Uh, but there were boxes and boxes of books that were were donated by the teachers, and it was it was just really awesome. And this is where we uh, brought a lot of the the books and supplies to Gregory Lincoln, and it, it was just really awesome to be able to do that. Yeah. What was their response? The school's response? Yeah, so one school who has lots of resources, and then there's right. this school, which is, in this school, 750 kids, 20% of them are considered homeless, uh, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, this is a fine arts school, and so they're kind of scrapping for, to promote their fine arts and creativity in the life of the school. Um, what, what was their response whenever you brought it? So I actually wasn't here when we brought it. Make it up. Make, just make something up. These people don't know. <laughs> But from what, what Andrew told me, it was, it was awesome. They were very, uh, very thankful. I, I know at Harvard, when I told the teachers that our church met at Gregory Lincoln, it was, all, it was an awesome opportunity to share with the teachers and the people in the community where the supplies were going to be going. And we had some teachers that had taught here, and they said, oh, yeah, we know. We know that they'll be able to use this stuff. And so the teachers got really excited about it. And once they found out what we were doing with it, they actually ended up Giving, even giving me stuff that they weren't planning to throw away, wow. but they were like, you know, we only use this like once or twice during the year, but we got toys and Legos and all sorts of awesome stuff. Yeah, awesome. Let's thank you, David. Yeah. Let's give it up for David. That's how you do good. In the response to things that exist in our community that... Um, create difficulties for you or for others, the way that you represent Christ in the community is you do good. Another domain that Peter talks about that we ought to be doing or we ought to respond with faith in Christ when we're suffering is is at work. So when suffering at work, remember your work is for God. First Peter chapter two, verse eighteen, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So when a person experiences difficulty at work, what do they typically do? Tell me. Complain, quit, 
gossip, wine, cut corners, right? This is what people typically do at work when there's difficulty. But Peter is instructing Christians to submit themselves to the authority God has put over them with all respect. And he includes this phrase, in case we think that it's only for those just bosses that we're to submit to. He says, to the just and to the unjust. Now, I'm not trying to minimize some of the difficulty that you all are experiencing at work. That's a very real thing. What I'm trying to do is help you think about how to live out your faith in the midst of that difficulty. And my guess is that all of you are experiencing difficulty at some level in your workplace. Why? Because you're working with people, and people are imperfect. Systems are imperfect. Verse 19, he says, This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures while suffering unjustly. It's really about where your mind is at work. And I'll make this point quickly. If you're mindful of God, you remember that at work, even when it's difficult, even when you're suffering, you're not working for that employer. You're not working for that dollar. You're not just working for the bottom line. You're working for God. You've been sent there by God to represent Christ. And I'm not sure I can think of any other way that you can better reflect your hope in Christ than when you continue to work hard and continue to submit and continue to honor those that are your bosses in the midst of difficulty. The way that you live out your faith in the midst of suffering says a lot about you. And the reality is that if there are your co-workers that are complaining, cutting corners, whining, gossiping, in the midst of suffering, uh, they will not last there. But if God wants it, you will. And you may even make your way up in the com- company because if you can figure out how to live out your faith in Christ in this way, in the midst of suffering, you will be like none other. Now, certainly there are times when difficulty at work means you ought to find another job. I'm not going to beat anybody up because if you've recently gotten a new job, having left a job that was because it was difficult. That's not the point. The point is when you're suffering at work, just trust that your work is not for man or woman. It is for God. Oftentimes, God uses the suffering in our life to do something in us. Uh, There's a quote by C.S. Lewis, who's a very famous Christian theologian. Suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. And the image he's making here is about a person who's laying on a surgery um, gurney, a, a table about to be operated on. For one moment, the difficulty that that person is about to experience might be seen as bad, but really, ultimately, the surgeon has in mind some good that's going to require some painful work. In A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis says this, the kinder and more conscientious that surgeon is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. We cannot always understand the pain and difficulty in our lives, but we can always trust that there is one who's working through it and that one is God so the third domain where you may be feeling some suffering and certainly those that Peter's writing to he wants to talk about is uh, is at home I'm going to talk a little bit longer about this so when we're suffering at home 
we ought to respond with inner beauty. Now, the context here is this. He's writing to a fledgling church where there are some wives who have faith in Christ. Their husbands do not have faith in Christ. And it was creating conflict in the home. It's creating a problem. A little bit later, he'll address husbands who are believing husbands because maybe their, their view of how they are to live out their faith in the home is skewed. But for now, he's really focusing on a wife and how she to live out her faith in, in, in a relationship with a man who she's committed the rest of her life to, uh, and he does not share her faith in Christ. But it also, I think, can be applied in any relationship. A husband who's believing and a wife who does not or parents who are believers and children who are not. Here's what Peter tells the wives. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And as I mentioned, in this case, the husbands are not Christians. They're experiencing the difficulty. And Peter's encouraging them. Think carefully about how you're to live out your faith in the midst of this difficulty in your home, whatever it is. And Peter's focus here is their conduct. Where will they focus to bring peace and to bring the gospel into their home? It seems that in this day that the women were tempted to focus on just the outward adornment, on beauty. So they might think, well... I'm a Christian, my husband is not a Christian, I want him to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, and so if I look more beautiful on the outside, he might want me enough and listen to my faith in Christ. But what Peter is saying is this, is there ought to be a focus not on the outside, but on the inside, because on the inside is where real beauty comes from, where God really begins to work, and what will really make an impact on others. Verse 4, let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart, which is the imperishable beauty. You know, the external beauty, it's perishable. Um, I, I don't, I mean, we live in a culture that's so focused on the external. Maybe we need to be reminded that the, the kind of beauty that's the most important in a man or a woman or even a child is, is not the external. And there's nothing wrong with being beautiful. I'm have a, be- a wife who's beautiful on the outside and the inside. I have kids who are beautiful on the outside and the inside. You know, so, so there's nothing wrong with being beautiful on the outside. But in the midst of suffering in your home and you're wondering what to do, the first place where there needs to be work is on the inside, where that's a, a kind of beauty that's imperishable. And what's really in this context being celebrated by Peter is the kind of woman who's, who's focusing on the inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, according to Peter, in God's sight is very precious. And now, this is not Peter telling the wives to be weak and let the men run over you. No, he's saying focus on the inner beauty because that is, in fact, where you will become strong in your faith. You won't have to flaunt your external beauty to make a difference in your home imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I wonder how many of you are experiencing some difficulty in your home. Well, Peter's not going to leave the husbands out. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now let me just, weaker vessel, there's debate as to what this means. What I think it means is simply she is literally weaker. There are not many men 
who are not stronger than their wives physically. And if you're a dude and you're not stronger than your wife, we have a workout plan we'd like to give to you. No, but I mean just physically. This is the way that God has made us as men. <laughs> uh, we'll have a test. We'll have a husband's and wife arm wrestle after church just to make sure who's going to be in the class. Um, weaker, the Bible as it describes men and women, there's certainly a natural order of authority throughout the Bible and every kind of relationship. But it, it's equal, there's equal worth between the husband and the wife. She's not weaker in the sense of like unimportant. She's weaker physically. Live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman. If she was unimportant, Peter would not be saying honor her, which means to hold her up, to celebrate the goodness and how honorable she is. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The phrase in here, live with your wives, literally means dwelling with. And it includes both social and uh, physical aspects. There's children in the room, so I won't be more descriptive of that. But it's social and physical, so dwelling with her. And the implication here is that a husband minimizes difficulty in marriage when he relates to his wife in a way that is understanding. What a beautiful word. She is not just his housekeeper. Amen, ladies? Or his sexual object. And husband must learn how to understand his wife. And the whole point here is like, okay, how do we, how do we reduce suffering in the home so that our, our witness in Christ can go forth? She is not a house, just his housekeeper or sexual object. Um, a, a husband must learn how to understand his wife. If he's unwilling to do this, if, if a husband's unwilling to learn how to understand his wife, you know what will happen in the home? Suffering. And this is what Peter's addressing. A husband must allow God to soften his heart, to slow them down, to enable curiosity so that he can understand his wife. The human being is complex. And all of us, men and women, but maybe men struggle more in this. Not always, but maybe. The hard work of curiosity in our marriage is sometimes more than we want to put time in. And if you're wanting a reason why we ought to be understanding to our wives, men, it's because if we don't, there will be suffering. She is for more than just domestic duties and sex. She is a beautiful, precious gift of God to us that must be given our highest efforts of understanding. Think about whatever thing you do at work or whatever you enjoy for recreation. Think about the thing that you most are most eager to learn about, either because you have to at work or because you want to because it's a sports team you like or whatever. Take that up about 10 levels and, and begin to approach your wife like that. Not doing so invites suffering into the marriage. In fact, it affects a man's relationship with God. Verse 7 We do these things so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
So I'm not great at this. I'll be honest. I'm not great at this. I have a lot of things in my mind going on all day long. This is the way I'm wired. I have tend to think about things. My wife, who's a very meek, beautiful individual, um, sometimes I come home, we, we're doing dinner with the kids, the kids want my attention, and they want to crawl all over me, and I play with them and give them time. And sometimes when we fall into bed, the last thing I want to do is to be curious about my wife, emotionally and mentally. So something recently I've tried to do in an effort to strengthen my own home and my own marriage is to take at least 20 minutes right after the kids go to bed and ask my wife some curiosity kinds of questions. And, and here's, here's the point. Without these, you know what happens in our home? Difficulty, suffering, conflict, disconnection. And, and I don't, unfortunately... Um, do it every night, but I'm trying to do it more. Just 20 minutes of questions like, how was your day? What was difficult today? What was good today? How were the kids today? Um, what do you have going on tomorrow? Well, and sometimes the things that she wants to talk about, quite frankly, aren't things that really interest me. And in the past, what I've done has just been like, uh, I don't care. I, don't, I really don't care. And then she slaps me. No. Um, but I'm trying to be more like, I want to hear a really, dis- I want you to describe for me that blog that you read in great detail, you know. But why? Because I want for there to be peace and joy in our home. Because why? Because ultimately I know this, that my relationship with my wife um, and the joy and the peace and the connection that's there. And, and, and as, we, as we respond together to the suffering and the difficulty that comes from just being human beings is a great witness to people that are outside of the faith. That's Peter's aim, I think. How do you respond in the midst of suffering so that your hope in Christ can go forward. It's not just to make your lives easier. It's so that you can continue to be a witness for Christ. And in all of this, we keep our eyes on Jesus. So I'm going to bring this to a close. Verse 21 of chapter 3. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. As Peter is trying to help these Christians sort out their faith in Christ, and how it affects their daily lives. He knows what I, about them, what I know about you, is that there will be suffering. You'll experience suffering in society, in your jobs, in your homes, and you will be tempted to despair. But God's word is saying that we can find hope in the midst of suffering, and that hope is found not just in uh, just gritting our teeth and fighting our way through it. No, that hope is found by putting our eyes on Jesus. See, when the roof is being ripped off, we get to look to the star, and that star is Jesus Christ. Are you suffering today? I hope that you've been encouraged and been given some ways to think about how to look to Jesus in the midst of your suffering. Let's think on and pray about these things. With your head bowed, I want to begin my prayer time by just reading these verses that describe how Jesus suffered.
and in the midst of it, continued to live his purpose. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in this time of reflection, the question for you is, are you suffering? Are you experiencing difficulty? Is it in society? Is it at your job? Is it in your home? Where are your eyes? I beg you to put them on Jesus. There's hope there. If you are here and you've never crossed over the line of faith, then today's the day. I don't know why you wouldn't do it. Let God take his rightful place on the throne of your heart. He wants to be there so bad that he came in the form of a man named Jesus died on a cross so that your sin could be erased. And through faith in Christ, you can have fellowship with God. You can be at peace with God. Still others of you are experiencing difficulty and you're wondering what to do and you've gotten a word from the Lord today. I just want to ask you to take this time to just process and ask Him and give Him and and uh, submit yourself to him in whatever area he has stirred your heart. All right, I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, we're going to sing a song of response. God Almighty, we love you. God, I want to pray for these that are thinking about areas where they're experiencing difficulty in their lives, maybe at work or home or maybe just as a result of policies that are in place in our community. I pray, God, that we would, we would uh, find the hope in Jesus. We would think about how to live our purpose and not be paralyzed by difficulty and paralyzed by suffering. God, you are such a good God, a loving God. And I just thank you that you want to be present with us in the midst of it. You not left us alone in the midst of difficulty. God, you're right there. And that's pretty awesome. Lord, we love you. And we sing this song now to you, God, as an act of worship, as an act of request, confession, whatever it needs to be, God, we do this. We love you, and I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.